one of the things that you need to know is that we are a place where we want to see um, people grow in their um, ministry abilities, not just uh, us as a congregation, uh, but also those who are with us. Nick uh, Quinn, if you don't know, is a seminary student at Denver Seminary, and he's going to be entering his third year um, this uh, fall. And so we've been uh, blessed to be able to have him with us as our worship director. And he also serves as a pastoral intern. So we want to give him as many uh, preaching reps as possible. Um, so we're delighted to be able to have him preach uh, with us and for us this morning. He's going to be preaching from Ephesians 2, 11 through 22. And I'll read that for us now. This is the y'all version. It's Nick's personal Southern Arkansan uh, translation. So. That's what seminary students do. They're like, hey, I'll translate scripture for you. I'm like, great. Okay, do that. Uh, <laughs> all right. Therefore, y'all remember that formerly y'all who were are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands. Remember that at that time, y'all were separate from Christ, excluded from citizen citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, y'all who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached the good news of peace to y'all who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to the Spirit by one, access to the Father by one Spirit. Consequently, cons Consequently, y'all are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, y'all too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Thanks be to God. Mark teases me about the uh, the y'all version, um, <laughs> but uh, the reason the reason I do that uh, is because uh, I, I, just as, as an effect of our uh, probably our uh, just American Western culture broadly, we are so individualistic, so individualistic. We don't even have a you plural in our language. And in many other languages, it's a you plural. It's a y'all. That's our best approximation. So uh, the reason I do that is because in the Greek, it is a plural uh, you. It is a community. So I just want us to recapture that communal effectual. It's not written to John. It's not written to Gail. It's not written to Sarah. It's written to a group, a community to be lived out in, and community there. So that's the y'all version. So there's my justification. <laughs> Um, but yeah, so uh, we just got back from the beach um, with my family. I was already telling Woody and John and Gail um, about um, all the kiddos running around in a two-bedroom condo. 
um, tons of noise. There's 10 people in there. <laughs> when it was raining, it's like we're all in there at one time and screaming and lots of loud opinionated people just like me. Um, but I love my nieces and uh, my nephew. And hanging out with my nephew is a lot of fun because uh, he is, what, six now? Yeah, he's six now, so he's starting to get more independent. But he is a very... Uh, attached child. He loves being near to his people. He loves being near to his mom when they crawl in bed together. Um, it, they just snuggle up next to one another. He's so affectionate. Very, very attached. He loves, loves his things. We went out to dinner one night, and we were walking back to the car after a long dinner, and Natalie and I were walking ahead, and we just heard, just like screaming I thought we like walked up a little ledge I thought he just like bass planted he was screaming so loud but he has this stuffy Mr. Rabbit that he had left at the table and so realizing that he had left uh, Mr. Rabbit at the table inside of just blood curdling screams he loves being near to the things that he appreciates that he really loves and the truth is, we all have this desire, this attachedness to the things that we love, we enjoy. It is a part of who we are. It's our created design. For nine months, we're experiencing this right now in our state, nine months you are attached in your mother's womb, the ultimate kind of nearness. And when they bring you out, what they do, yeah, yeah when they just pull you right out, uh, <laughs> they place you on your mother's bare chest, and then you have time with your father's bare chest. That nearness, that attachedness, it's something we all crave. It is a part of that, that, that type of bonding. Um, but the thing about Hudson, my nephew, as attached and as near as he wants to be to his people, it's only when he wants to be attached to those people. We had to wake up one early one morning and I taking my job his his uh his dad stayed home for work and and so I was uh, doing my best fatherly figure and was waking him up because we had to go take pictures right let me tell you he did not want to be attached at that particular point in time so it's funny how we long to be attached except for when we want to be in control of our own circumstances we no longer want to be near we want to be isolated. We want our own situation. And this is true broadly of humanity. You see, in our fallen condition, although we crave this nearness, we live in open rebellion against the nearness that God has made us with and that God offers us. This is trickled down through human history. Adam and Eve in the garden tempted, um, they rejected the closeness, the ultimate nearness that they had with the Father. And what they're doing there, this is the heart of sin. It's taking God off of his throne and saying, I don't want you to be there. I'm going to be the God of my throne. You are no longer God. Go far away from me. Don't wake me up this morning. I am my own. I'm in control of my own uh, uh, circumstances. And that is idolatry. And so we see that this rebellion against the nearness that we've been given trickles down and it affects 
all of us. They had been given everything, Adam and Eve in the garden. They were made like God. They had dominion like God, but they wanted to be God in their own circumstances. And we do this too. We do it all the time. This concept of, of, of trying to be your own God of your own situation. And I think sometimes in modernity, it, it, it eludes us in a sense. Our culture and individuality, um, we think, well, as long as I'm not hurting anybody, I'm good. We conduct our lives like saying, you know, you do you, I'll do me. My, affection, or my actions don't affect you, and therefore they are moral to their own end. We want to be the gods of our own situation. That's so evident in our culture. Specifically us, um, I know many of our backgrounds, but specifically us who have grown up in Christian backgrounds, we are blinded to this in a particular way, maybe more harmful. We think our actions are all right because Jesus is on our side. Well, I will do this, um, and if I'm wrong, Jesus will forgive me anyways, right? I can do this or that because I'm on team Jesus. I don't feel like I'm rebelling against God. I'm a good person. I do good things. My friends, we have Christ, but we still run from Christ. We run from Christ when we hurt one another. We run from Christ when we place our desires over the needs of others who depend on us who we love. We run from Christ when we neglect our responsibility even just to serve and be faithful to one another. We have Christ, but we run from Christ. And some of us, and it feels like this at times in various stages of our life, some of us know Christ, but we live like we've never known him. Some of times our life looks a lot like before we knew Jesus than after we knew him. And hear me well, I'm not trying to rain on our parade. It seems like doomsday has arrived here in the first part of this message. <laughs> but what I am wanting us to feel, maybe viscerally, is that we each rain on our own parade. Left to our own devices, we take God off his throne and we put ourselves on it. We make ourselves God. That is the heart of sin. We reject that nearness that he offers us when he is seated on his throne. We make our desires, we make ourselves somehow less human when we try to make ourselves like God. And I want us to understand that is what Paul is addressing here in Ephesians 2, 11 through 12. Let's read those first couple of verses together again. Therefore, y'all remember that formerly, y'all who were Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done uh, which is done in the body by human hands. Remember that at that time, y'all were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. My friends, left on our own, left with our former identity, left with what we would have for ourselves, there is no hope. It is as if God does not exist for us. Hopelessness abounds, as it should, I think, we can all see from the world around us. Let's read verse 13. But now, in Christ Jesus, 
Y'all who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. This is some of the most beautiful words in the whole Bible. In in the original language, the Greek, it, it kind of crescendos here. This is the main point of this text, the main clause. It should be read for us. But now, Paul is screaming here, Christ has brought you from your former life to be back near to God by the sacrifice of his blood, which has made you clean. But now, you see, we take God off of his throne. We place ourselves in his throne, but he forgives us and brings us back near, back to the foot of the throne where we belong and ultimate comfort and peace. If you could imagine with me, um, just the son of a king. Um, He has everything he could ever want. He rules over these people as the prince. He's wealthy. He's blessed with every opportunity. And his father, the king, is benevolent. He wishes that his son would do well by him and follow in his line of succession to rule over the people. But the son, he has other plans. He's not content with what he has. He wishes to rule right now. So the son gathers half of the bannermen, if you will, in a a period piece. Think of uh, your favorite period piece. Gathers the bannermen of the kingdom for support, wishing to start his own new kingdom. And the son wages war against his father. It's a long and bloody war. Many people die in the struggle between father and son, but eventually the son is defeated. See, he was fueled by his own desire to have everything, even his father's throne. He decimated all of his resources, losing everything, realizing his defeat, wishing to have the life from the good father that he once had. The son returned penitent to his father's kingdom. This is where something strange happens. The king does not imprison his potential usurper. He withholds every right to execute capital punishment on his son who is in open rebellion against him. But he does not. He is his son. He is his beloved. He is the one whom he made from himself. Son is not executed, but repentant. His son is restored to his position as an heir to the kingdom. He is forgiven and liberated of his sure punishment. He was far away, but he is brought near. And my friends, that is what Paul is explaining here. That is what so often I think, I mean, maybe it's, it's repetition or we hear it and we, go, or we gloss over, but that is the weight of what Paul is trying to describe. You who were once far away, he's talking about Gentiles specifically in this text, but we all are Gentiles and we have lived in open rebellion against our Father, but Christ... <laughs> being selfless, being full of love and mercy, has died to liberate us from our sin. We were once far away. Hopelessness abounds, but we are brought near, restored to our position. And I want you to hear me well. Paul is not saying that is who you are. You are far away. What is key is that 
is who you were, but who you are now is redeemed, restored. That is who you were, but Christ. Christ has entered into our lives, and now that we have the Holy Spirit has taken hold within us, we are given our status. We have our heir to the throne, the throne which we so longingly grasp for ourselves. It has been given to us through Christ. We are a new creation. That is who you were, not who you are. And what does it mean to be restored? What does it mean to be like God? It is to be good like God. Be good. Make life, not death, just like you were created to be. You may be thinking, amen. (laughs) I hope, anyways, Uh, if you've not uh, lost me at this point. Or you may be thinking, great, that's the 500th time I've heard that message in a sermon. And if so, thanks be to God, because that is the gospel. That is the truth of what Christ has done for us. And that is worthy of celebrating each and every day. But what I love about Paul is he's always trying to get us somewhere. There's always a purpose to his teaching. When I was in uh, my undergraduate program, um, I was in, there, there, there was a kid who was, he was a uh, He was a freshman, we were in a a junior level advanced Greek grammar course, uh, and he was in there as a freshman. He was a super genius kid, you can imagine, and the reason he was in there as a freshman was because he taught himself biblical Greek as a high schooler. (laughs) So it's just like, you know, very, very intelligent, probably had a a thriving social life, I'm sure, Um, (laughs) but... But, but we, all, we all know the type, right? Just very highly intelligent. Um, and he knew so much about the language, far more than I knew at that point in time, and I prided myself on that in particular. Um, and he was that way in every class. In every class we did, he was just, I mean, he was so, so sharp. But as we got to know him, he was not super friendly. He was more like openly rude, just like, a jerk. He would start arguments with fellow classmates, with teachers, um, and and he would start he would start a conver- or a, an argument with you, and then once class was over, not even acknowledge you like you were you were real. But the thing I want to illustrate is he spent so much time devoting himself to the study of God's word, and he desired to know and explain every theological detail. But to what end? <laughs> He obviously was not living well with others. He wasn't even showing them like a level of human decency. So what was the purpose of the accumulation of this theological knowledge? And then a reason I say that is because that is not what Paul is. Paul tells us the gospel because he wants to send us out. He wants us to be the hands and feet of Christ. He doesn't just give us some theological platitudes and it's like, you're good. You know it now. And that's what he does here in verses 14 through 22. So if you would go back, we'll read that long section um, together. So Christ, this is who we were. To, to, to recap us, this is who we were far away from God. This is who we are now. Christ's blood having redeemed us, we are brought near. And this is where we are going. This is the church. 
let's read 14 through 22. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached the good news of peace to y'all who are far away and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Consequently, y'all are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, y'all too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. You see, my friends, Christ died for us for a particular purpose. Many purposes, but a particular one that Paul is highlighting for us today. See, that is who we were is separated. Now we are brought near. And when we are brought near to God in relationship with our creator, we therefore are, are brought near to one another. Christ died that we be unified to one another. You see, just for some context, in the first century church, they dealt with a lot of things that Maybe we don't particularly deal with, um, you know, conflict between the rich and the poor, public sin taking over congregations, litigation between church members, racism and cultural disagreement, the effects of slavery on their society, theological disagreements, choosing to follow this charismatic leader, conflict between the genders, different political agendas. Oh, wait, <laughs> that sounds a lot like us. <laughs> what I'm saying is, is the stuff that plagued the first century church, the things that caused the disunity, there is so much harmony to those. And I say that there's so much similarity to our problems today. You see, those people were people just like we are people, and we carry the same baggage. We make the own, our own problems and that is division you know we do it wherever we're at we want it to we seek to divide ourselves in endless ways um, it's us versus them it's be it our churches our different denominations our political affiliations our friends even our countries relationships our families even our marriages we seek to divide and I could keep going but Christ did not die so that we could divide ourselves. Christ died to bring us together. And that is what Paul is saying. Whatever disagreements you may have, whatever the, the beauty of the gospel is that you are unified despite your differences, not divided because of your differences. It is unity, not division. How much more beautiful is it when you have a, uh, a, a Wesleyan and a, uh, a reformed person serving on the same staff rather than, you know, one th uh, theological system? How beautiful is it when we can stand together 
all the different colors of the world. I'm reminded of a, a picture when I was uh, in elementary school. It was on the bulletin board right when you walked into the left of Eastside Elementary in um, Magnolia, Arkansas. And I would walk in and you would see it. And it was just cute little cartoon um, picture of the, the world, just a globe. And all around it were little children, boys and girls, dressed in all different types of dress, all different hair colors, all different skin colors and types. And all were holding hands around the world. And I'm reminded of that in, uh, God, when you read Revelation, all the tribes and tongues and all the people coming together worship God. That is what Paul is saying here. Whatever division that we may have among ourselves, Christ died to be that bridge. And he has given us the power through his Holy Spirit to be able to create unity in one another, to restore, to redeem, and to love one another in a way that embodies what he is doing, making new humanity out of us. See, our unity is worth so much more than we realize. Uh, if you were, let me ask, let me pull the room. If you were going to ask, I'll give you my answer afterwards. All the New Testament letters in, 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 in the New Testament, all the letters written to churches, if you had to pick an overarching theme, what would it be? I've already had given my hand at my answer. What might it be, Mark? What do you think? Uh, breaking down the division. Breaking down it, yeah, yeah, totally. <laughs> Anybody else? All the New Testament letters written to all the churches. What, what might you say? Grace, yeah, see, that, uh, that's a super common answer. Um, grace, and grace is a part of the formula, but the New Testament letters are written for unity. They are written to churches how, on how to be churches, on how to be the people of God, despite your differences. That's like, I mean, if you numerically look at the books of the Bible, that's like a fat chunk of them. That's just unity, 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 unity. And that is what we are called to do as God's people. And so I'm asking us, and this hits us in a lot of different places, um, I'm asking us, where is there discord and disunity in our life? If Christ died that we might be unified, where are we disuned? Dis, where is there discord between us and another person? Where in our family is there disunity? Where in our community is there disunity? Where amongst our different churches, our denominational lines, is there disunity? My friends, we don't have to look far to see that there is disunity all around us. But Christ is the bridge that crosses any barrier. Christ died putting those powers to death so that we, becoming more and more Christ-like every day, can be a source of unity. So let me ask, how can naming and thinking of those individuals, those institutions, the things which we cross in every single day, how can we encourage somebody with whom we wholly disagree? How can we show kindness to somebody who would seek to hurt us and has hurt us? How would we mend the tears that are in the fabric of Christianity, of Christendom? Start small. Maybe it starts with conversation. 
a helping hand, a meal, an open bottle of wine, whatever it is for each of us. Paul is telling us that we were far away. Christ has brought us near. And in this nearness, we bring others in as well, in unity. Let's be bastions of change in the world, not concerned about what separates, but what unifies, because that is what Christ died for. If you would, pray with me. Father, we love you because you first loved us. God, you loved us enough to create a world that you always envisioned us being a part of. And God, when we have turned our back historically, Father, from the beginning of time against you, saying, God, not your way, but my way. And when we each individually in our lives, day to day, week to week, when we say, God, not your way, but my way, how much do you still pursue us and do you love us? And how much have you loved us in the person of Christ who came and died and freed us from our bondage? And God, now it is not who we were. You do not see us for who we were, God. You see us for who we are, and that is through the lens of the blood of Jesus. You don't see enemy. You see child. You see beloved. You see and you long to see increasingly unity amongst your family, the church. So, Father, empower us to act and be a bastion of unity. Father, holding hands, not holding up fists. God, we love you because you first loved us. And we love you because of what you have in store for us. God, which we are so undeserving of. And we pray this in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Spirit. Everyone said, Amen.